Please rise as we read God's word together. We will be reading from James chapter 5, and we're coming to the conclusion, uh, nearly to the conclusion of this really great book. Uh, So hear the reading of God's word, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So far the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we come humbly before your throne this morning. We come not in our own strength. We come not in our own wisdom. But we come through your grace. So we pray this morning that you would guide my words, that you would carry these words to your people, that you would mold and shape lives because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And so, Lord, not only hear our prayers this morning, but be the God that promises to take action with our prayers according to your will. So we plead with you to do just that. May your word guide us and shape us. We pray this in the strong and living name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. The words pray or prayer are used in every verse of the text we just read this morning. A total of seven times, as a matter of fact, in this passage. The big idea then is obvious to us this morning, isn't it? We've talked about it already a number of times in this worship service. Jim prayed about it and was very eloquent as he quoted various things and prayed about prayer. So this morning we're going to talk about prayer, what it is, why it is, and all these things. And then as James winds down this letter, he wants us to see that true Christianity, all the things that he's been talking about, how faith is byproduct of what Christ has done, and that prayer actually fuels all of the things that we've been talking about throughout this entirety of this wonderful book. You see, through prayer then, the heart of God is opened to us. Every aspect of life is to be brought to God through prayer. You see, we not only have a God that we come in here this morning to worship. Yes, we do that. But we also have a Father in heaven who cares and is near. Invites us and beckons us and encourages us to come to Him in prayer. You see, then this passage takes us deep into the heart of God's grace. It tells us the good news that God is for us, not against us. He has every reason to be against us, especially if we look over our lives this past week, or maybe even this morning or the last few minutes. Our hearts are often hard and calloused. Our lives are full of mistakes and misfortune and heartache and misery and sin and brokenness. God could throw us into the pits of despair. He could condemn us here and now for the rest of eternity. Yet, through His grace, He tells us to come. He tells us to pray. 
He tells us to draw near. You see, this is God's response to all of life, all of our lives. In the face of our weakness, in the face of our sins, God's response is in and through the cleansing blood of Christ. He opens the door to the heavenly gates. He could slam that door shut and we would have no access to the throne room of God. Yet, by prayer and through prayer, by grace and through faith, we have access to the throne room of heaven, to the great God Almighty. He calls us to come boldly. He calls us to come with Him, come before Him with all of our needs, our struggles, our joys, our heartaches, our sorrows. And He says to us, the throne room is never closed. It's always open. So before we go too far into this passage, I want us to just take a moment here and marvel. Marvel at the grace of prayer, the gift that we have in prayer. We have the privilege. We have the privilege to come to God. Let's just let that settle in for a second. Through prayer, we have the privilege to enter into the throne room of heaven and to speak with the creator of the universe. And he wants us to come near. You see, the God of the universe cares about your little life and about my little life. You see, it's not too little for him. He made your life. He sustains your life. He cares about your life. God gives us our good days and our bad. God does not stand aloof on our bad days, but He tells us to come. And He actually draws nearer and nearer in those bad days. He delights to draw near. He delights to care for you. And He provides a way for healing and of peace even though none of us deserve it. The God who created us, who created the universe and rules over us and rules over the entirety of the universe, sees and knows you and me. He knows the deepest part of our hearts. He knows the deepest of our sorrows and the highest of our joys. And even in the middle of all of that, He still says, come into my throne room. Come into my presence. And he draws near to us. He calls us to himself to find provision for all of our hurts and to give praise for all of our joys. So what then does God want us, I think, to see in this passage that we just read about in James? At least two things, I think. There's, there's all sorts of things that we could draw from this passage. But I want to draw just a couple things for us, and it's really pretty simple. When do we pray, right? And why do we pray? Those are the two themes over the verses that we just read this morning. So the first thing is, when, when do we pray? How does James answer that question? When do we pray? Muslims pray five times a day. Buddhists pray three times a day. Hindus pray at least once a day. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, what does God tell us to do? 
He says to pray without ceasing. So we have these ideas about these other, hey, they pray all the time, but the Lord says to us, don't ever stop praying. Come to me all the time. And what does that mean for us then very practically? Why does he say that? Because the God that we love, the God that we worship, the God that we serve, he's near to us. He's not out there somewhere. He's not distant. He's not aloof, but he's near. Yes, he is transcendently above us, yet at the very same time, he's also imminently near to us, always with us. He's always here. And so what does that mean? We have the ability to never stop praying. We have access to him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We can pray anytime and at all times. We don't have to face Mecca. We don't have to bow down to an image. We don't have to be in a temple. We don't have to be in deep meditation. Our God is always available to us. At any moment, at any time, throughout the day or throughout the night, God's ears are always open. His throne room door is never shut. And the access that we have is through faith. Faith in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who is given to us, to us that believe. Here's the wonder about prayer. We don't have to wait to get all of our stuff together before we can enter in the throne room. We don't have to get cleaned up. We don't have to wash ourselves. We can go to God in prayer at any time, at all times. We don't have to find the right words to say even. We don't have to be eloquent. We don't have to be theologically educated. Be ourselves. And we enter into prayer. All we have to do is come. All we have to do is start talking. Start praying. You see, Jesus told us not only to come, but to come often. Tim Keller has this wonderful phrase I, I came across this week, and I didn't know he said this. And um, it's, it's kind of funny, but I think it's actually true. He said, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. is a child. We have that kind of access. But unlike a father who might eventually get tired of us waking him up at 3 o'clock in the morning, he won't get tired of us waking him up. Not that he sleeps. Don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. You see, God will never get frustrated. Dads, you know you have a limit, right? There's only a limit that you can actually take your children waking you up at 3 o'clock in the morning. There's only a limit of how many games of Candyland. There's only a limit of how many times you can play catch. We all have a limit. Some of us limits are really small. Some of us have really large limits. The beauty about prayer and the God that we serve and the God that we love, God does not have limits to the access that we have to him. He's perfect for needy people like me and like you. He's perfect for high-maintenance people like me <laughs> and like you. Our needs don't turn God off. They actually energize Him. 
to draw closer and nearer. He doesn't get annoyed or overwhelmed by us. He calmly and gently and lovingly receives us and cares for us. You see, then James highlights this access to God as we look at verse 13. So if you have your Bibles open or your apps or whatever it may be, let's turn just quickly here to verse 13. He says, this is what this access looks like. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praises. So when do we pray? We pray when life stinks. We pray when life hurts. We pray when we're sad. We pray when we're hurting. But what else? We also pray when we're happy. We pray when we're joyful, when we're celebrating, and when life is going well for us. And so if we take the one extreme and the other, it means that we can fill in the middle with prayer also. So if we pray when we're miserable, when we pray when we're ecstatic, that means we should pray all the time in between as well. And God is always open to us. You see, nothing is too insignificant or too large. Are you suffering? Pray. James doesn't qualify the type or amount of suffering. Sometimes we think that when we pray, it has to be like a really big thing like a, a major catastrophe, and then we pray, right? This is how, this is our natural knee-jerk reaction. Why? Something's bad, so I better pray. Something's hurting, so I better pray. This is hard. I should be able to handle this, right? And when I can't handle it, well, then I pray. Or maybe I should be better at dealing with the things of life. I can do it. I should, I should, I should. We should go to prayer at all times. James doesn't say pray is a last resort. He doesn't say pray when things are so hard you can't do anything else. He doesn't say pray when things get wildly out of control or suffering reaches more than what we can handle. He doesn't put any of those qualifications on any of that type of suffering. What he says is God cares. He's there. He will help. In suffering, the worst part of it oftentimes is that we feel all alone. When we're hurting, nobody understands. No one understands my pain. No one understands my sadness. Nobody understands what I'm going through. The gospel says something different, doesn't it? Jesus says to us, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm always near. In our suffering, we're not alone. And we know this too because Jesus suffered just like we did and do. He hurt. He wept. He cried for the death of his friend. Yet, he turned to the Lord. He's there because he understands. If life hurts for whatever reason, pray. If life is wonderful for whatever reason, pray. You see, this world, for all of its fallenness, still holds beauty, doesn't it? Beauty that sometimes takes our breath away. 
poet Gerard Manley Hopkins says these words, which are really great. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. When we wake up and the sun is shining, not so much today, we wake up and it's raining, whatever it may be, and the air is hot and sultry or the air is crisp, and the best part, when the coffee is good and the day is open and it lays before us, and we have the opportunity to do meaningful work, and our heart swells with the good things of life, what do we do with that gratitude? James says, praise God. Praise the Lord for Him giving you another new day, and even when it's sultry and hot and the rain comes down, and in Texas we love our rain because we don't get it all that often, so we praise the Lord. You see what James is doing here? He's linking prayer and praise together almost as the same thing. Praise rightly directed is prayer. It's the heart's cry to the maker. Thank you. Thank you. This is what praise is. This is what worship is. It says, I'm going to worship you and say thank you for who you are and what you've done and your faithfulness to me and to your creation. And so then we can generally and individually, we pray when something bad or good happens to us. And so now, now James moves into verse 14, and he moves from something kind of general, and he starts moving into specifics, from individual to, to small groups, if you will, in verse 14. He says this, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So when do we pray? We pray at all times, and now he begins to drill down a little bit closer and, and more practically. He says, Part of what happens in life is that people get sick and they get ill. So when do we pray? We pray when people are sick. When sickness overwhelms us and takes us into the shadow of death. This kind of prayer that James is talking about here is not the kind of sickness when we have a, a common cold, right? He's not saying if you have the sniffles, I'm not saying I wouldn't show up or the elders wouldn't show up. However, if you have a cold, it's not say, hey, Pastor Ryan, I have a cold. You need to come over here and pray over me and anoint me with oil because I'm not feeling well. That may be taken to a little bit of an extreme. So that's not necessarily what James is talking about. If you were to call me, I probably would come anyway. If you asked me to, I would. However, there's something a little bit more to this story than just that, right? The sick person can call the elders of the church, and they will come and pray over them when things are dire, and anoint them with oil. You see, what James is saying here is he's saying, this is not an, I'll try everything that I possibly can, and then I'll call the elders to come and pray with me. That's not what he's saying. It's saying quite the opposite, actually. He said, this is not the, the last shot in the dark to, to help me be healed or, or seeking God's help or letting God minister through the elders. He's actually saying, this is just part of the natural pattern of life that we should call our elders and our pastors when we're ill and things are really bad and things seem dire. When we are down and we're out, God still provides, and He provides us with people to help and to pray for us. And He ministers to us through prayer and through others' prayer for us. And then He says in verse 15, what is the result of that prayer? And the prayer of the faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. This is a little tricky, though, isn't it, right? Some people would have, some people have used this as God's promise 
that all who pray the prayer of faith will be healed, so there's no need for doctors, there's no need for... That's, that's not what this is saying. It's not saying don't ever go to a doctor and just pray. That's not what we're talking about here. Because if we go that route and the person's not healed, right, it's blamed on a lack of faith. Well, the person that was sick didn't have enough faith or the, or the elder or the pastor didn't have enough faith to actually have true access to God and God won't answer that prayer. The sick person doesn't have enough faith, but what does James mean then when he talks about the prayer of faith? Does it sound like God's asking us to have some sense of uh, a requirement of a certain amount of strength and faith in order to bless us? Like this is some type of quid pro quo or something like that? God doesn't require that from us, does he? Did Jesus come to us with demands that we measure to his standard before he would ask us to pray? Did he recoil when Thomas sought to touch Jesus' scars? Or did he stoop low and humble himself? Did Did Jesus not come gentle and lowly with his heart meek and mild to the weak and sinful persons? to the doubter, to the hurting. Would God be so cruel then as to keep his blessing from those who come to him in humility just like Jesus or somehow determine that their faith isn't sufficient even as they look to him for help? This is not the God that we know. This is not the God that we love. Would God withhold his power and his love and his care and his concern until somehow we measured up to his standard? That's not grace. That's not mercy. That's not how our God works. So if the prayer of faith means that all who believe enough are healed and only those who believe enough are healed, then, then why was Paul's thorn not taken away just to continue to build this argument? Why did Paul have to leave a sick friend behind in his mission, missionary journey as we saw in Acts? Did Paul lack faith if his prayers weren't answered? Lack of healing cannot be because of a lack of faith. When God says no, it must be for reasons that we don't know, can't see, or have not seen yet. So what do we do with that then? We have faith and we trust, and prayer then is that act of faith that we go to him. You see, because the opposite then is what Jesus actually does. Jesus healed some not because of their faith, right? But actually to stimulate their faith. In John chapter 9, Jesus healed a a man that was born blind, if you remember that story. The man didn't ask for healing, but Jesus healed him anyway and said, go and worship. In that instance, faith was a result of healing, not a prerequisite for healing. The healing was a charged the man's faith. Here's, here's the point after all that. Healing is a gift, not compensation. Healing is a gift, not the reward. We're not in charge of God. We don't pull the lever of his healing powers when we pray. Like if we pray enough and we pull this right level, lever and we say the right words and we do the right things over and over again, then God just might heal me or my loved one. That's not how this works. Or we store up enough, we store up enough coins to throw into the heavenly slot machine and hoping that we get cherries and we're all healed. 
No, we humbly ask and trust God for His healing. And we relieve the result in His hands, in His will, and, and what He will do. The prayer of faith, then, is not faith that somehow we want or that we desperately need something or that it will be granted if we pray hard enough. The prayer of faith, then, is the prayer that we have faith in the will of God and what He will do in His power and in His accordance and His sovereignty. So the prayer of faith is not, I have enough faith and therefore I'm healed. No, the prayer of faith is that I put my faith in God and in His will and in His sovereignty. It's laying our lives then at the throne of the Lord God and His hands. We trust in His will by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's looking to God and not to anything else. That doesn't mean, however, that physical healing doesn't always come because we know that it does. It also means God can heal even despite our doubting. It's not the strength of our faith then ultimately that matters, is it? What matters is the one in whom we have faith. God knows what he's doing. And we need to only trust. Here's the hard thing about that. Maybe he will heal. Maybe he won't. But we do know. But we know ultimately, no matter what the answer to our prayer is, that one day, those who pray that prayer will be healed. We all will die. But those in Christ will be raised again. And in that resurrection, we will have restored bodies. And the Lord tells us there will be no more mourning, no more pain, no more death, no more, no more sorrow. We will have glorified bodies, glorified lives in the new heavens and the new earth. And we put our faith in that. We put our faith in the will of the Lord to do what He promises to do, to raise us as He raised Jesus, to glory with Him. And then James goes one step further again from an individual prayer to more of a small group prayer, if you will, to a corporate prayer. Into verse 16, he says to all of us, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The exhortation then is to confess in prayer. What it also means is prayer isn't reserved for only the sick. It's for everybody. Someone says this as well, and I like this phrase also. This is not mine. It's a quote that I found. Confession is like removing the oxygen from sin's lungs. It heals. And when others listen and then others pray on our behalf, they help us to find the healing of forgiveness. As we know, a fire needs oxygen to burn. And when it has enough oxygen, it burns wildly out of control. And it has enough tinder, it burns wildly out of control. And what confession does is take the tinder and the oxygen away from sin. So now then, in this context, James may have in mind those who have sinned against one another. 
and perhaps those who have harmed the church. Sins against God are confessed to God, but sins against God and others are confessed to God and to others. We do that carefully and humbly, and we do, that's why we do that every single week here in church. We do both. We confess our sins to God as individuals and also as a corporate body because when we sin, we don't do it in a vacuum. We don't do it just between me and God. Our sin affects one another. My sin affects you. Your sin affects me. And so then we confess openly as a body and as individuals. And James says, confess your sins to one another. He doesn't say confess one another's sins. We like to do that too, don't we? We confess our own sins to one another. What does he say? He says, pray for one another. Just as there's a command for a sinner to confess, there's also a responsibility of the one hearing to pray, to intercede, and to take the matter to God, not in our own hands, not in our own strength, but to take it to the Lord and then to move forward. James doesn't say embarrass one another or shame one another, but pray for one another. And so what we really believe about God is seen in this interaction then, isn't it? When our sins are confessed. If we believe in the grace of forgiveness of God that we have in through Christ, then we will freely forgive others. And mind you, this is on the heels of what we saw last week of grumbling and patience and caring for one another. If we believe that we're forgiven and that we confess our sins as a corporate body, then we're all in the same boat. We all need grace. We all need forgiveness. Do you see the beauty in all of that? What a glorious grace and mercy that we have in and through confession and prayer. This then is how deep fellowship is birthed in Christ. It's that simple, and it's that profound. We cultivate a culture built on the gospel of grace. This then is a path to healing, physically, spiritually, in our brokenness, or any time that we need it. So that's when we pray. God invites us to pray because He cares about our lives and the specifics. So then quickly, we'll try to land this thing here in just a second, but but why do we pray? God not only coaches us and tells us when to pray in in James chapter 5 here, but He also says this is why we pray, and we've seen it already. We pray because by prayer, God heals and forgives, but there's more. In the second part of verse 16, James says something interesting to us. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then in verses 17 and 18, he gives us an example of Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah then is an example of a righteous person's powerful prayer that works. So at the most basic level, we pray because God says prayer works. And James says, how do we know that? Because look at the story and the example of Elijah. Prayer works. That's why we pray. Now, we know Elijah is a prophet in the Old Testament, 
But the reason that James chose Elijah as an example is not that he was some extraordinary, awesome, inspired prophet from the Lord. But what does he say? The precursor before the example is that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Not saying, he's actually saying the opposite, that that Elijah was some wonderful, amazing, awesome prophet. He was actually saying, no, Elijah is just like you. And prayer works. And this is how. So if we go back to the Old Testament, we see that Elijah's prayer are not out of nowhere. He doesn't just pull a prayer out of his hat and say, okay, God, prove that prayer works right now. He says, you know, he doesn't say, you know, I'm going to pray for rain and I'm going to show that, I'm going to show the prayer works to these evil and wicked people and I'm going to pray for no rain and it's not going to rain and that'll prove them wrong. That's not what he does or says, is it? In Deuteronomy 28, God told Moses to tell the Israelites, if you do not obey the Lord your God, these curses will come upon you. The Lord will strike you with scorching heat and drought. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. Elijah lived in a day of Israel's rebellion against God. He was praying God's words to the people of Israel. That's why it worked. Not because Elijah had some special resource into God's will, but he knew what God had said and promised. Working prayer is asking God to do what God has already said he was going to do. Elijah is the righteous person aligning his prayers with the promises of the Lord God Almighty not the other way around. He's not trying to get God to align to his will. He's aligning his will to the Lord's will and what the Lord has already promised to do in that particular situation. We pray ultimately because God is true to his word and when our prayers are aligned to his word, we have confidence he will do what he says he will do and prayer works. Elijah prayed because God had spoken. We pray because God has spoken. Prayer is not a string of of empty words to a wordless God, but a pointed plea to a speaking God, a living God, an active God. We know what God plans to do in this world because he told us what he's going to do in this world. We know his purposes. We know his intentions. We have the Bible as our ever-present understanding and word of God to know what God is going to do. So in the Bible, we have examples like that of Elijah, of people who prayed, asking God to do what he said he would do, and God answered those prayers. So we pray not because our, our ideas are awesome and wonderful, or because it makes us feel better about ourselves, or because somehow we think that God will change the course of history because we offered up some prayer that is eloquent and righteous. We pray not because it's our idea, But by prayer, God invites us into his work. Charles Spurgeon says these words, Prayer moves the arm that moves the world. Just as Elijah's prayers directed the rain, your prayers in Christ direct the world. Yes, God is sovereign and can do what he will without us. But he chooses to use our prayers. And the Bible has no contradiction here. Your prayers matter. We have a nature just like Elijah. You're weak, so was he. You're not enough, 
Neither was he. You're powerless. So was he. But our prayers are not powerless because God is not powerless. Prayer is not a magic incantation thrown to the wind, but our faith put in God, whose arms reach around the universe, whose hands are not weak, and whose power upholds the universe. Our prayers, like Elijah's, are powerful because we're praying to a powerful God with a powerful will. How then does this relate to what James has said through the book of James? How does it relate to our lives? We pray because God is involved in our lives, because He's not far off. He's not distant. He is near. He's with us. We take our hard things and our good things to Him as the proper landing spot into the throne room of heaven to a God that's loving and caring. We pray for healing and we confess our sins because we know God has promised to heal and to forgive. So even if our physical healing must wait until heaven or the return of Christ, we know that that will ultimately be the healing. We pray for forgiveness because we know that we're healed and forgiven by grace through faith in what Jesus has done through for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Because Jesus says, I do forgive you, and I have forgiven you. We know this because of Jesus and what is glory and his grace. How do we know that? Because like Elijah, Jesus was made human just like us. The author of Hebrews in chapter 2 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. You see, in the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh, Jesus has a nature just like Elijah and just like you and me. He lived a human life with human suffering and with human prayers. He entered into our world in order to save us by living the life we can't and couldn't. By dying a death that was made for us, the death that we are owed because of our sin and our rebellion. Jesus became a man to save us and to give us grace and to give us access to the throne room of heaven. This is why the curtain was torn in two, so that we could enter into the throne room, into the Holy of Holies. Because of that, when Jesus rose from the grave, he put a yes at the end of every one of our prayers. Because of Jesus, we will be raised one day. Yes. Because of Jesus, we will be healed one day. Yes. Because of Jesus, we will be forgiven. Yes. Because Jesus, we are forgiven. Yes. Because of Jesus, we have a hope. Yes. Because of Jesus, I put my faith in him. Yes. You see, Jesus puts the yes at every one of our prayers. And so then we pray into his will and into his life. Because of Jesus, we will be raised and we do have a hope and we find that our deepest prayers of our hearts are granted as God plants his word into us, not because we deserve it or even because we prayed the right words, but because God will bring all of his promises to pass in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We pray because prayer aligned with God's will and word works. Prayer draws us closer to God, closer to his gospel, closer to his word, 
closer to his world, closer to his heart. In prayer, God is inviting us into reality, suffering, joy. He's inviting us into his reality as we await the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, what's better than that? What's better than prayer then, if we know that's true? So friends, let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come to you again this morning in prayer. We come to you with our joys. We come to you with our sorrows and our heartaches. And we pray into your will. You told us that you will give us grace and mercy and forgiveness. And for that, we give you praise. And you told us that whenever we gather in your name, that we should come to you and that we should partake in a meal where you tell us that you broke your body and spilled your blood, that we would have hope and forgiveness and grace. And so we not only come to you now, but we come to this table. We come to this table expecting that grace and that mercy because we know 